0: Father, we praise you for the good news of this gospel. Father, we thank you that while we were wondering, that when we had turned our backs against you, when we had drifted from you, when we had fallen from you, when we ran from you, we rebelled against you, you did not resign us to the grave. But you and your grace and your kindness, In your mercy, you reached down and you rescued our souls from death. Father, we praise you for this. We thank you for the sacred stewardship that you have entrusted to us as your children to continue proclaiming this good news. We thank you for the privilege of sharing the story of Jesus who rescued us and saved us and ransomed us and who gives us new life. Father, on this day in particular, we praise you and we thank you for the gift of mothers. We thank you for your grace and kindness in giving mothers who love you and who serve you. Father, I praise you for my own mom today, who shepherded my heart and taught me to love you and to follow you. Father, I thank you for my wife who has. Given our family three beautiful boys. Lord, for every mother in this room, Father, Ford, how they serve us in a million unseen ways, for every unseen, uncelebrated sacrifice, for every unglamorous moment, help them to know today that there is a heavenly Father who sees them and loves them, who delights in them and sings over them. And thank you for the gift of mothers. Father, I pray today for those for whom today is a difficult day. For those who have estranged mothers, for those who have maybe never had a relationship with a mother or a difficult relationship with a mother. Father, I pray for those in this room who desire to be mothers and yet are not. I pray for mothers who have lost a child. I pray for mothers with distant children. I pray for mothers whose children have walked away from you and whose hearts grieve today. And so, Father, I pray that you would be near to them this morning, that they would rest in the promise of Psalm 34, that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit. Be close to them today, Father, and comfort them by your grace. And fathers, we turn our attention to your word this morning as we proclaim one more time today the story that never gets old, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you shape our hearts by this message? Will we submit ourselves now to the full authority and counsel of your word? Will you use it today, father, to edify your church and glorify your name? We ask, Lord, that you sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. And we ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, uh, I'll invite you, if you're not there already, um, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We'll be looking at the last verse today of Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Um, also covering all of chapter 2. But um, before we jump directly this morning um, into the book of Jonah, the Lord uh, laid it on my heart this morning to just share a few things um, in regards to the uh, Supreme Court draft opinion uh, that leaked this past week regarding Roe versus Wade and what is to be our response as followers of Jesus Christ. Um, As followers of Jesus, when it comes to any subject, whether it is spiritual, whether it is moral, whether it is ethical, whether it is philosophical, even if it's political, when it comes to any subject as followers of Christ, we do not start first and foremost with what are my thoughts on this, what are my opinions on this, what are my feelings on this. We don't start with lived human experience and the stories of others. We don't start with what does our political party have to say about this. We don't even start with what does the church have to say about this. We start first and foremost with any subject with what has the word of God said about these things. What does the word of God have to say about this? And when it comes to this issue of life within the womb, Scripture speaks clearly to these matters. One of the most famous passages of scripture that we'll hear quoted, if you've never heard it before, you'll probably hear it a lot in the weeks ahead, in regards to God's relationship with the unborn comes from Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 through 16. In it, the psalmist writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The prophet Jeremiah, the Lord speaks through him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and before you were born, I consecrated you. From, from these two passages of scripture, we see some very clear truths from the foundation of God's word. God knows the life of children from the womb. We know that it is God himself who is knitting together intricately, fearfully, and wonderfully life within the womb of the mother. We know that all of life has been crafted in the image of God. The doctrine of the Imago day is a fundamental Christian doctrine. If we deny this doctrine, if we reject this doctrine, then we have walked away from biblically orthodox Christianity. And so church, there's no uncertainty when it comes to what we see clearly from the word of God. God knows and is forming life in the womb of a mother fearfully and wonderfully in his image, which means we have to be actively working to protect and to value that life. And yet, as followers of Jesus, our calling is not just to be politically pro-life. Our calling as followers of Christ is to be holistically pro-life. It's not enough to just be pro birth. The Word of God calls us to be holistically pro life from womb to tomb, which means upholding the doctrine of the Imago Dei is upholding the sanctity of human life and protecting it in the womb, and is also upholding the dignity of human life outside of the womb. Because just as clear as God's Word is about how to protect and value inside the womb, He is clear about how we're to treat life outside of the womb. So right now, we have two competing political narratives that want you to believe it's one or the other, but as followers, of Jesus. This is not an either or church. It is a both and. The word of God calls us to be holistically pro-life from womb to tomb. This is our calling as followers of Jesus. And so we need to state it as clearly as we possibly can on the authority of the word of God. Abortion is a modern day holocaust. If you study history, the same arguments that are being used today, whether it be practical, economical, relational, these are the same arguments that were used to justify the practice of slavery. They are the same arguments that were used by the Nazis to justify the extermination of the Jews. They are at their heart the same issues. And more than just being a justice issue, abortion is a racial justice issue. If you are uh, seriously concerned about justice in our culture and you're willing to do this research, you need to go see the honest start of all of this decades past. That This has been the systematic attempt across the decades to exterminate entire ethnicities from among us. And we as followers of Jesus have to recognize this for what it is. It is a modern day Holocaust in the worst injustice of the last 50 years. As a nation, we have blood on our hands for how we have not just tolerated this, but celebrated this. How we as followers of Christ have passively allowed this to happen and even just passively sort of turned a blind eye to how all of this has unfolded. And yet it is not enough to be politically pro-birth. We're called to be holistically pro-life. Which means we don't just protect life inside of the womb. We value and cherish life outside of the womb. You hear the testimonies of of so many women who have had abortions, one in four statistically statistically. They saw that they and felt that they had no other option. And unfortunately, the church has oftentimes been the most unsafe place for women who have experienced an abortion. And, church, this should not be so. We should be the, those who are most eager to care, who are most eager to step in, who are most eager to cherish and value and uphold not just the sanctity of life, but the dignity of human life. And I, I can't think of a better renewed commitment that we could make on Mother's Day 2022 than to protect the life of children in the womb, the future mothers of our society, and also to uh, reaffirm our commitment to serve every mother regardless of their circumstance, We ask the question, shouldn't we be doing more as individuals? Should we be doing more as a church? The answer is always yes. But we cannot as a culture or as a society have with any integrity whatsoever a conversation about the value of human life until every human being has the right to live. And right now, this simply isn't true. the, The cultural message that we're hearing over and over and over again right now is my body, my choice. But think of this follower of Jesus. The message of the word of God is not your body, your choice. The message of the word of God, 1 Corinthians 6.20, is you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, in light of this, glorify God with your body. And it is impossible for us to glorify God while we see the lives of children be destroyed and his image be desecrated. So, so I want to give us four challenges as a church family. I'm going to speak more into these things in the coming weeks, but four challenges for us as a church family. Number one, I want to challenge you to join me in actively praying that Roe would be overturned. For us as followers of Jesus, that should not be a confusing issue. If life is being formed and crafted and made by God in his image, if God has a relationship with children before they are even born, then it is incumbent upon us to see that life be protected and valued. You know, our culture has so much to say about justice, and yet there is no more vulnerable, marginalized, or oppressed group in our nation than the unborn. It is hypocrisy at best to say that we care about justice while the image of God in life is desecrated in the womb. So we need to be actively praying that this would be overturned. But beyond simply praying that this be overturned, we as followers of Jesus need to be giving. We need to be doing everything that we can to support ministries and groups that are pro-quality of life for women and the children that they bear. So um, we as a church, just so you can be aware, we have over the last five years poured tens of of thousands of dollars, about $20,000 we've set aside for this year alone uh, to three local ministries that we believe in very strongly. Um, One of these is the work of Radiance Women's Center. Um, We have folks actively engaged in the work that they're doing there. This is a ministry that we support financially. They are on the front lines uh, serving and ministering to women who are considering abortion so that they can see the alternative and so these women can be surrounded with care. So uh, we do support them financially as a church. I encourage you to go above and beyond. Uh, Beyond that, we support the life of Uh, We support the work of Young Lives, which is a ministry to teen moms. Um, We have in our church family women who are mentoring these teen mothers. We are uh, supplying them with practical needs, tangible needs, um, relational needs. And and our church has been a welcoming space for for many of of these young women throughout um, the years. We need to continue building this up. This past Thursday, I met with Aisha, who is the new uh, Young Lives coordinator. And and she did not hesitate to tell me the greatest need ongoing is always the need for mentors. It's women who are willing to come alongside these young women as they navigate what it means to be a mother. But beyond just our giving, I want to challenge us to serve church. <laughs> Um, we, we uh, want to show up and be present with these ministries. Um, I've had the opportunity to do this, especially with Radiance and with Young Lives. And, and I just challenge you to, to, beyond your financial giving, find ways that you can come alongside these ministries, support them tangibly uh, to make sure. We also have a partnership with Lifeline Adoption Agency. They do incredible work um, here. And we, we've got folks who have been engaged um, with their work as well. Beyond that, in our congregation, we have families actively engaged in adoption, in foster care. So listen, the criticism will not be made of cross-community. Church, that we only care about life in the womb. We have have absolutely not just put our money, but put our bodies and our lives where our mouths are on this issue over the last five years, and we are striking down that narrative. But the last challenge I want to give all of us as a body of believers is that if nothing else, our congregation has to be a safe place of healing and restoration and redemption for women who have walked through abortion. Statistically, one in four women in our nation have had. An abortion. And as I shared just a moment ago, unfortunately, the church at times has been the least safe place for them. They have been ostracized, they have been humiliated, they have been rejected. Listen, church, if there is no hope for healing and forgiveness and redemption for a woman who has had an abortion, then there's no hope for any of us at all. The grace of God is something that every single one of us need. And so this is what's on us as followers of Jesus in the years ahead. Because understand, this is not the end of anything. This is only the beginning. That this is just the next inflection point in, in this whole process. What is given to us for this generation of followers of Christ are two things that, that are both equally true. Number one, we are going to have to stand firmly and unflinchingly on truth. The cultural pushback is already happening and it's going to continue to happen and it's going to be heightened in the coming days. And we have got to be able to stand unflinchingly on what the word of God has had to say about these things. And yet in the same light, we have to be people of grace and love and compassion for those who are walking through these things. Again, you're you're living in a world that wants you to believe it is one or the other, but this is not a situation where the conversation is grace or truth. This is grace and truth. We are not called to be either or, we are called to both and. And so this is my vision for our church family, is that we would be so loving, we would be so caring, we would be so supporting, we would be so generous with our time, with our relationships, even with our homes, that the women who are considering abortion would know for certain they have loving, caring community right here. We can't control what every other church does, we can't control what every other Christian does, but we can focus on what we do right here. I firmly believe that generations from now, this practice will be looked on with the same disdain that we view the practices of Nazi Germany. Because the line of reasoning and the logic and justifying is just the same. This grieves the heart of God. It's a sin that we've got to seriously begin to deal with as a nation. And the Lord has opened a door of opportunity. And so um, I'm going to pray one more time here before we jump into Jonah this morning. I just encourage you to join me in an agreement in prayer as we take this request Before the Lord. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, recognizing uh, a great evil that has been allowed to exist for far too long. And Father, also to repent of the ways that we have failed, not to just actively see it overturned, but we have failed to serve those whom it has most impacted. And so, Lord, it's our prayer, it's our desire this morning that you would not let us be either or Christians, that we would be both and followers of Jesus, that we would hold the line on the truth of your word, that we would actively work and labor and endeavor to see this wickedness overturned and reversed. And with equal strength, Lord, we would come alongside and serve those who will be impacted the most. We know that both children in the womb and children outside of the womb are near and dear to your heart, that they have been formed and crafted in your image, and that our calling as your children is not just to uphold the sanctity of life, but its dignity. So, Lord, equip us to that end this morning. We ask boldly and pray in faith in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that this would be overturned. Father, that we would see this wickedness eradicated from our midst and that we would be a safe haven for any who will be impacted by its challenges. So Father, we submit these requests to you. We ask that you continue to work in us and through us to be the healing hands and feet of Jesus in the midst of a dark and lost and broken world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, so Jonah chapter one uh, going to look at verse 17. Just going to jump right into things this morning um, uh, and uh, go through the end of chapter 2. It's one of the beautiful things of preaching through the Bible verse by verse. We might not get to all of this today, and if not, I'll just pick back up where we left off um, next week. All that most of us know, unfortunately, about the book of Jonah is that Jonah is the prophet who spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And this is really unfortunate because as we're going to see over the next four weeks, um, this is really just a footnote in the narrative and is not at all the main point of the book. Um, the final verse of Jonah 1 is not all, only what makes this book famous, um, it's also the reason why this book is most widely debated. So if you're looking at Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, let's just rip the band-aid off right away this morning. It says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, verse 17 tells us plainly that the Lord appointed a great fish. The Hebrew word that's used here is a generic word for fish. We're not told exactly what type of fish it was or the size of the fish. So there's really not much value in speculation here. If you're a a Jurassic Park fan, uh, my middle son, Nolan, who's seven, his theory is that the great fish spoken of in Jonah chapter one uh, is the Mosasaurus. And I'm I'm just going to roll with Nolan's theory. Who knows? It uh, doesn't do us a lot of good to speculate because we're not given those, those details. But the key question here that is always debated is, how is it possible for a man to survive three days and three nights in the belly of a fish? Uh, opinions about Jonah and about this account tend to fall into three pretty broad categories. It's either the category of myth, the category of metaphor, or the category of miracle. Uh, many liberal scholars who will deny the possibility of miracles simply write this off as a myth. Um, They argue that it would have been impossible for a person to survive three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. They will argue correctly, uh, biologically, that that most whales will struggle to swallow an orange, much less a person. So they'll place it squarely in the category of mythology, uh, arguing that this could never happen. But even many professing followers of Christ will put this in the category of metaphor or allegory. Um, They'll argue that the events of the book of Jonah are not literal, uh, but figurative, and that this story is only symbolic. Um, They'll point to other passages of Scripture and miraculous occurrences, through the Bible and say, it's okay if these weren't real events because the symbolism is still powerful and you really don't lose anything by not taking them literally. Now, uh, I disagree with that for three reasons that we see in scripture. First and foremost, Jesus himself talked about this event as if it was a real occurrence. If you turn in your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 12, Um, Dave read this for us a couple of weeks ago, verses 38 through 41. Jesus talks about the story of Jonah as if it's something that really did take place and happen. It says in verse 38, "...then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you." But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah." So Jesus himself talks about this event as if it was a historical occurrence. Jesus speaks of the events in this book as if they were real historical occurrences and, and says in the same way, not, me, not metaphorically or symbolically, in the same way that Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. When he talks about the men uh, being raised up on judgment uh, from Nineveh to, uh, on the judgment day, he's pointing to a past historical event in order to predict a future historical event. Um, Second challenge to that is that the book of Jonah does not have the characteristics of a a typical parable. If you read the parables of Jesus, for instance, they're usually very, very short, and they're to the point. Jonah, on the other hand, is a four-chapter narrative. Jonah's a narrative that uses real names, it uses real people, uses real historical places like Tarshish and Joppa and Nineveh. But, But here's the third reason why I don't believe that this is simply metaphor. You might remember from a couple of weeks back that Nineveh was a city where where many, many prophecies were coming through their gates every single day. Matter of fact, there were so many prophecies coming into Nineveh uh, that there were people appointed whose entire full-time job was to vet the prophecies that were coming in to determine who gets to make the cut. Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll see Jonah's primary message for the Ninevites was a message of judgment. So how on earth does Jonah's message get to make the cut, a message of judgment? How is it that as his prophecy is vetted, they give him the platform to preach a message of God's judgment upon the people? Well, we know in Nineveh uh, that they worshipped Dagon, and Dagon is known to us, along with his female counterpart, as the fish god. So follow me here for just a second. Uh, it, It probably doesn't hurt your chances of getting up to preach to a group of people who worship the fish god, if you have a story of a God who delivered you through a fish. So this is not an insignificant detail. This is important for us to see that this is something, as we see it play out in Jonah chapter 2, we put this not in the category of myth, not in the category of metaphor. We put this in the category of miracle. Now, I fear there's this tendency among many professing followers of Jesus in our culture today. We have this tendency to take passages like this and we reduce them to allegorical or metaphorical. And we're doing this because we wanna make the message more palatable for critics to accept. We understand that those can be stumbling blocks. It seems childish, it seems immature, it seems ignorant, it seems mythological that we would believe these types of stories. So we'll do anything to kind of soften that blow to make the message easier for others to accept. But church, when we do this, if we're not careful, we will inadvertently make God look less powerful than he is. The point of the miracles of the Old Testament was foreshadowing the very things that Christ was coming to do. So when Jesus comes in Mark chapter 4, and he controls the sea, and in Mark chapter 5, when he multiplies fish, the point of all of this is that people who are familiar with the story of Jonah would know these are things that only God can do. The point of a miracle is that it's a miracle. We struggle with this sometimes. Sometimes. The primary focus here, the primary question should not be, is it possible for a man to survive for three days in a fish? The question we should be asking is, is it possible for God to sustain a man for three days in a fish? We see Jonah's confession going back earlier in this passage. Jonah 1.9, he says that God is the God who made the sea and dry land. So if God is the God who spoke the sea into existence, if the God is the God who spoke all of the animals into existence, if God himself is the one who initiated the natural laws that govern our universe, then he can, at his bidding, at any point in time, suspend those natural laws to accomplish his purposes, or he cannot be God. The question here is not, can man survive? The question here is, can God save? That's the question that we need to be wrestling with as we look at this passage. When Jesus told the religious leaders they would only receive the sign of the prophet Jonah, he was referring to his own resurrection. We celebrated this just a couple of weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. Romans 10 reminds us that if we believe, to believe in Jesus Christ, to have saving faith in Jesus Christ, it requires that we believe that God has raised him from the dead. Listen, friend, if you can't bring yourself to believe that God could keep a man for three days and a fish, how can you believe in a man who came back from the grave? The key to understanding the miracles in the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if God can raise Jesus from the grave, then he can do anything. Amen. You are awake this morning. That's good to know. God can do this. This is the miraculous work of God. You know, One commentator confessed of this passage, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama inside of Jonah. Our main concern here should not be what was going on in the belly of the fish. Our main concern should be what was going on in the heart of the prophet. You know, it's really sad to me. I've heard sermons on this passage where the entire time was spent, it's been half the sermon, someone trying to prove how possible it is for someone to, to do this. And they'll point to different historical accounts where people have been temporarily swallowed by animals, like, see, it can happen. We don't need to do this because our God is God. He does whatever he pleases. He does this however he pleases. The question is not, can man survive? The question is, can God save? And for every single one of us in this room who are followers of Jesus, it should be easy for us to believe that God miraculously kept Jonah in the belly of a fish because he's done a far greater miracle in all of us, which is raising our souls from the grave. If you can't believe that God did it for Jonah, how can you believe that he will do it for you? The primary message of Jonah is not a story about a man who survives. The primary message is about a God who saves. So that is my introduction uh, for our message this morning. And this is what we're going to see in Jonah chapter 1. That the Lord has made every provision for our salvation. All of salvation, the whole work of salvation from start to finish is completely and totally a work of God, and we see this reflected in Jonah's prayer. It is God who hears our cries for help. It is God who saves our souls from death. It is God who sends us out to proclaim this good news. So from Jonah chapter 1, let's read again verse 17 down through chapter 2, verse 2. It says, "...and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights." Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. This is one of the most famous prayers in all the Bible. He says in verses 1 and 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So we see five components of Jonah's prayer, showing the work of salvation by the hand of God. We see first from 117 to 2.2, Jonah's plea. This is Jonah's plea. Now, Jonah chapter one verse three told us Jonah's goal. He wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord, not working out for him so well, up to this point. He wants to flee from the presence of the Lord, and so far, the trajectory of Jonah's life has been down. I love how Nate said this earlier as he was doing the scripture reading. Jonah was at the bottom of the bottom. The trajectory of his actions at this point has only been down. Chapter 1 verse 3 says he went down to Joppa and found a ship to Tarshish. Verse 3 also says he went down into the ship with the sailors. Verse 5 says he had gone down into the inner part of the ship during the storm. Verses 15 through 17 shows us that he goes down into the depths of the water when he's hurled into the sea. And up to this point in time, he's also been prayerless. Jonah didn't pray about his decision to go to Tarshish. Jonah didn't even pray when the pagan captain asked him to pray. Even the pagan sailors prayed to the Lord as they were throwing Jonah into the sea. It wasn't until he gets into the belly of the fish that Jonah finally turns to the Lord in prayer. And it's finally after coming to the end of himself from the belly of the fish that Jonah lifts up his prayer. He says, I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So this is Jonah's prayer. What we we see over and over throughout this passage, Jonah describing essentially a near-death experience. Um, Sheol is a place of divine punishment. We see later in verse 6 that Jonah essentially saw himself as in prison, as being locked behind bars. And it's not until Jonah is as good as dead and he comes to the end of himself that he breaks down and turns to the Lord and prays. Uh, This is from Richard Phillips. He says, sometimes the very best thing that can happen to us is the very thing we most dread. For the simple reason that it strips away our self-reliance, humbles our pride, and removes us from every other hope save that of God. Sometimes this is what it takes for us to really pray. I just encourage you to ask yourself this question this morning. How far down are you going to have to go? How deep in your rebellion are you going to have to go before you finally turn to the Lord? What's going to have to happen in your life How far down are you going to have to go before you finally turn and cry out to him in repentance? I I fear for many of us today, it's not going to happen until you hit rock bottom, or in Jonah's case, sand bottom. It's not going to happen until you get to the lowest of the low, until you can't go any lower than you have possibly gone. What's it going to take for you to turn to the Lord and get honest about your sin? Is it going to require you blowing up your marriage, guys, because you won't be honest about the sexual sin that's in your heart? Is it going to require you blowing up your marriage, husbands and wives, because you just harbor unashamedly, relentless hostility towards one another? Is it going to require parents losing relationships with our kids because we're constantly putting our careers in front of them? Is it going to take losing every friendship you have because you're a relationally toxic person who's unbearable to be around, who can't help yourself with the gossip and the slander? Is, is it gonna take financial ruin? Is it gonna take a major physical health struggle? Is it gonna take prison? Like what's it going to take before you honestly begin to deal with your sin? How much lower are you going to have to go before you call out to God for help? And, and in Jonah's case, it wasn't just his running, his actively going away from God, his sin of commission. It wasn't just that. For Jonah, it was also a sin of omission. God had given him a very clear directive. He had given him a very clear command that he was refusing to obey. So for some of us, we're going to hit rock bottom, not by sinful rebellion. We're going to hit rock bottom simply because we refuse to do what God has called us to do. How low are you going to have to go? How far are you going to have to fall before you learn to deal honestly with your sin and to turn to the Lord in repentance? But here's a comfort that we find in this story. The comfort that we see from the example in the life of Jonah is that no matter how deep you've gotten yourself in, no matter what depths you have found yourself falling to, you can never fall into sin so deep that you are outside of the reaches of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. When Jonah was sinking, when he could not go any further away from the Lord than he had gone, when he considered himself as good as dead, when, when seaweed was tangling around his head, At the depths of the depths of the depths, at the bottom of the bottom, God saw him, and he heard his cry, and he rescued him. You are never, friends, outside of the reaches of the grace and the mercy of God. And right away, we see part of what makes Jonah's prayer so powerful is the fact that he takes total responsibility for his circumstances. Look at how he says this in verses 3 through 8. He says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars had closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So we've seen Jonah's plea. Second from this prayer, we see Jonah's penance. He finally comes to the place of repentance. Jonah recognizes as he is sinking to the bottom that he has come under the completely just judgment and wrath of a holy God. He knows that he is receiving a punishment that he 100% deserved because of his rebellion and sin. We see it reflected in his prayer. Verse 3, he says to the Lord, you cast me into the deep. Even at the hands of the sailors, he knew that they were only instruments being used by God to carry out his judgment. You cast me into the deep. Verse 4, he says, all your waves passed over me. This was the Lord's doing in judgment. The images of water closing in over him and weeds wrapping around him and bars closing upon him indicates Jonah's recognition that he was experiencing the just consequences of his own sin. He had sinned against God, was in rebellion against God, and was worthy of nothing but death and the judgment of God, and he knew it. And this is the first step in repentance. The first step in genuine repentance is taking ownership of our sin and recognizing that we are only deserving of God's judgment and wrath. This is from James Montgomery Boyce. He says, No one has ever truly repented until he or she has acknowledged that there is nothing in any person that can possibly commend him or her to God. And no one has ever been saved who has not come to God on the basis of the sacrifice that he alone has provided. Now, back in January, we were in Hosea chapter 6, and I mentioned this very briefly. I think in our culture, we tend to be very often, tend to be very, very guilty of equating the feeling of conviction with the action of repentance. And these two things are not one and the same. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for our sins or remorseful for our sins. Paul talks about the difference of the, between these in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He lays out a difference here. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So again, there is a worldly grief that's just about kind of being sorrowful, kind of being remorseful, being sorry that you did what you did. But that is not true in genuine repentance. Being sorry is enough to condemn us. It's only when we enter into genuine repentance and turning from our sins that we find true salvation and deliverance of sins by the hands of God. So understand, church, repentance is not being sorry that you got caught repentance is not just experiencing guilt and remorse. Repentance begins with recognizing our total and complete unworthiness in the sight of a holy God. And Jonah does this. Jonah recognizes that it was God and God alone who rescued him from his circumstances. Verse six, he says, you, Lord, brought my life out from the pit, O Lord, my God. He understands he contributed nothing to this. Jonah doesn't doesn't sing and cry out, I'm really glad that I'm a great swimmer so I was able to work my way out of this. I was, I'm really glad that, 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 that the Lord had me here so that I could get myself out of this. situation. No, he recognizes he contributed nothing to this. Everything that he was experiencing at the depths of the sea, this was the result of his own actions, and it's God and God alone who reached down to save. So, so two indicators, two markers of true and genuine repentance that we see reflected in the example of Jonah. True repentance requires that we first renounce the severity of our sin, we not minimize it at all. We, we don't whitewash our sin. We don't minimize our, our sin. We don't suppress the severity of our sin. We acknowledge our sin for what it is, which is wickedness in the eyes of a holy God. So true repentance means that we re- recognize the severity of sin, but we also see from Jonah, it requires renouncing the sufficiency of our idols. It's not just recognizing the severity and the depth and the magnitude of our sin and dealing with it honestly for what it is. We also have to confess that there is absolutely nothing that can save us from our sins. This is what Jonah says in verse 8. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah recognizes that it is God and God alone who can save him. And so he has to renounce the the hope that that could ever potentially be found in idols. He recognizes none can be found in idols, and so he has to renounce any sort of sufficiency in these things. Now, uh, here's the sad thing when it comes to idolatry. Um, Are there any, like, 1900s, any Indiana Jones fans in the world? Like, when we think of idolatry, you know, what we tend to think of is, is like Indy swapping out that little gold statue for the bag of sand, and then he has to run out of the temple while the big boulder chases him, Right. Like that's what we think of idolatry. We think primitive. we think offering incense to little wooden statues and, and leaving coins to little stone figures. We think this is primitive, that this is no longer something that we're that we're, immune, that we're you know, susceptible to. But, but church, we make idols out of far lesser things all the time. We so easily and quickly drift into idolatry, because idolatry is simply when we put anything in the position of God. Idolatry is when we give our worship and and we give our affections to something other than to God himself. We're just as prone to idolatry as any generation. This is from Peter Williams. He says, The essence of idolatry is anything that commands the central place in our lives and to which we give the loyalty and devotion which rightly belongs to God alone. For some people, their, their money is their God, and the pursuit of materialistic goals dominates their lives. But we can make an idol out of anything, sports, sex, drugs, politics, career, even home and family. Anything that nudges God out of the perimeter of our lives can become idolatrous. And friends, here's how the Lord uses even our idolatry to draw us to himself and to save. What God will often do in his love is that thing that you value, that you cherish, that you want above him, he'll let you have it. Let you have as much sex as you want to. Let you experience as much pleasure from substances as you want to. Let you have as much money as you want to. He'll give you career. He'll give you cars. He'll give you a house. He'll give you status. He'll, he'll give you fame. He'll, he'll let you have it just so you'll recognize how empty it is. And listen, I, I'm not saying anything right now that every one of us doesn't know to be true. You know that when you lay your head on the pillow at night, none of it's enough. There's always something more that you want there's always something greater in, in your mind. You, you will never have enough. Many have said that our hearts are like little idol factories. Even when we don't have them, we'll just create them. And we'll find things that, belo- that go into God's position in the place where only he belongs. All of us are seeking salvation somewhere. The question is, from where are you seeking your salvation? From where are you seeking rest for your soul? From where are you seeking ultimate pleasure? From where are you seeking life. That's the true idol that you worship, and that's the true God that you worship. Jonah shows us that salvation is found in Christ, and it's found in Christ alone. He goes on in verse 9 to say, but I, not like those who will worship idols, he says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So three components of verse 9, very quickly here. First, we see Jonah's praise. This is Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving from the belly of the fish. Now, one of the reasons why the legitimacy of this passage is consistently criticized is because of Jonah's response from the belly of the fish. What is even more unbelievable to many critics than a man surviving in the belly of a fish is a man who is praising in the belly of a fish. Like they'll look at this and say, okay, that's like the worst situation anyone could ever find themselves in. There's no way this guy is grateful. There's no way this guy is praising God in the midst of these circumstances. There's no way, that's why this passage can't be true. Nobody would respond in this way. For many critics, this is too unreal to be true, and here's why. Because they have not yet found the truth that is real. And this is the testimony of God's people all through Scripture, all throughout the ages. You go back to the story of Job. It's one of the earliest stories chronologically in your entire Bible. What happens to Job? Job loses his family. Job loses his home. Job loses his health. Job's friends are absolutely no help. They are no good. I mean, he has lost everything, and yet what is Job's response? Blessed be the name of the Lord. His joy was not contingent on any one of these things. We see this story told time and time again throughout church history. Brothers and sisters in Christ who sang songs of praise while their bodies burned at the stake. It's happening across our world today. Brothers and sisters in Christ who will gather together quietly to praise the name of our God while their friends next door have guns that they would use to take their lives if they found out what was going on. Brothers and sisters in Christ this morning in Ukraine, even with the threat of bombs falling on their heads, many who have lost family members and friends and loved ones, you know what they're going to do? They're going to get together and they're going to praise the name of the Lord our God. You ask, how is that possible? It's only possible from a group of people who believe in a man who walked out of a grave. Who understand and know that death does not get the final say. That it's not going to rob us of life. It's not going to rob us of joy. It's not going to rob us of thanksgiving. It seems to many too unreal to be true because they have not yet found the truth that is real. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is that truth. The gospel tells us that when we were at our worst, like Jonah, God gave us his best. And our testimony is that the world will see him at his best when we're able to praise him at our worst. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this in the life of our own church. I've watched husbands and wives stand together with lifted hands and praise days after they lost a child. I have watched husbands and wives stand together in praise, united in praise, thanking their God weeks after their children told them that they hated them. I have seen families and individuals rejoice with lifted hands right after they lost their jobs, when they were on the brink of losing their homes, when when they thought their marriage was going to fall apart, giving worship and praise to God. I watched my own father worship his way through four years of cancer until it finally took his life. And then we stood around him as we said goodbye. And friends, we sang with joy, it is well with my soul. This is possible, and it's only possible through a heart that has been raised to life in Jesus Christ. Circumstances did not dictate Jonah's praise. He was in the worst of the worst of the worst, and yet he still raised a song of thanksgiving to his God. Beyond that, the rest of verse 9, he goes on to say, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. So forth we see Jonah's promise. He now makes a promise to the Lord, what I have vowed, I will pay. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 16, there is a, a striking resemblance between the actions of the sailors and the actions of Jonah and the words of Jonah here in this verse. It says, after they hurled Jonah into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging, verse 16 says that the sailors feared the Lord, offered a sacrifice, and made vows to him. Now, uh, just, just maybe put your thumb on this for a couple of weeks. This is why this is important. Because in the coming weeks through Jonah's ministry, what we're going to see is his own disdain and hatred for the people that he's going to minister to. And yet what we have in the first two chapters, it's a picture of both Jews and Gentiles bringing their worship before the Lord. the Lord. And this is the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel breaking down the walls and the barriers that have been set up by sins. We're coming back to that in a couple of weeks. But this passage doesn't show us the exact nature of the vows that Jonah makes. But I think it's safe to say based on the context, Job is finally fully surrendered to the calling and the mission that the Lord has given to him. When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, it is an all or nothing call. Mark chapter 8 shows us this. Jesus turns to the crowd that's following him and he says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, here's what's required. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. A few weeks ago, we studied the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. We know as followers of Christ, the story does not end with become a disciple and get baptized. That's not the end, that's the beginning. Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's, it's a whole life, all of life, for the rest of our lives, transformation that we go through. It's not just a, a one-time, one-thing commitment that we never step into ever again. Our salvation is not simply about escape from God's judgment. It's amazing if you look at this passage. Jonah never actually formally requests to be delivered from the whale. Like, or from the fish. He understands, like, like, this is actually God's just judgment on my life. He doesn't expect that. He, he praises in spite of his circumstances and in spite of these challenges. And this is a powerful picture for us because our salvation is not just about being delivered from judgment. It's about submitting and surrendering to the new life that God has called us to going forward. And I just want to ask you this morning, how are you doing with this? How are you doing with being submitted and surrendered to the all that he has commanded? Because here's the reality for us this morning. I I fear for many today, you don't know how to be submitted to the will of God because you've not yet submitted to the Word of God. For Jonah, he got himself into these circumstances first and foremost by rejecting the Word of God. He turned his back on the Word of God. And this is a great indictment on our generation of Christians. We don't know the will of God because we don't know the Word of God. We can't fully submit to the will of God because we don't fully know the Word of God and the will of God. It's a great indictment on our generation. We have greater access to scripture than any generation of Christians in all of history and yet we are among some of the most illiterate. And the issue isn't our thirst for information. As a matter of fact for many of us that's actually the primary issue is that we're feasting on information that's not our bibles. We are informed and educated by everything that's not the word of God. So we've got a generation of professing Christians. We know what the podcasts have to say. We know what the books have to say. We know what the bloggers have to say. We know what Instagram and TikTok influencers have to say. We know what the political talking heads have to say. We know what the documentaries have to say. We know what an individual's personal experience has to say. We know what our favorite celebrity pastor has to say or Christian author or conference speaker. We even know about the people who don't like those people and their opinions about those people. We know what they all have to say. What many of us don't know, unfortunately, is what the word of God has to say. So when we do deal with issues like abortion as a culture, we're like, what do we do? Because we have filled our minds with every word that's not the word of God. We're being shaped and discipled and catechized by a wicked, wretched, perishing and going to hell world and submitting ourselves to the word of God. Many of us today are being informed and educated by everything but the word. So instead of filtering our thoughts and our opinions and our convictions through scripture, we often filter scripture through our thoughts, opinions, and conviction. So even if we know what the word says, many of us are guilty of refusing to submit to its authority. We cannot be fully committed to God until we are fully submitted to the authority of God's word. We will never be fully devoted. We will never be wholeheartedly devoted to the will of God until we are wholeheartedly submitted to the word of God. So Jonah closes out this passage. He makes that promise. What I have vowed, I will pay. And then here comes his great confession and profession of faith. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And verse 10 tells us that it's at that moment the Lord spoke to the fish And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So we have seen Jonah's plea. We've seen his penance. We've seen his praise and his promise. And finally, from his prayer, we see Jonah's profession. Salvation belongs to the Lord. All of salvation from start to finish is totally and completely a work of God's divine grace. And look at this. Everything good that happens to Jonah in this passage happens completely in spite of who he was and what he was trying to do. It was God, verse 17, who tells us, that appointed the fish. It is God who rescues. It is God who allows him to experience the emptiness and the consequences of sin. It is God who has given him a purpose and a mission. It is God who delivers him into the dry land. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the profession upon which the church is built and upon which the church stands. We are saved, friends, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, which is why we preach the message of the gospel according to the word of God alone. If you were to summarize the doctrine of salvation in one simple sentence, it would be Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Martin Luther, what was once asked, he was receiving opposition from the Catholic Church. Who put great uh, credence into uh, the works that we would do to earn and inherit and affirm salvation? And, and they were, he was once asked, what, what, sir, did you contribute to your salvation? And this was Luther's response. He said, Sin and resistance. That's true for all of us. That's what we brought to the table. You weren't saved because you went to church. Like you you weren't saved because you got baptized because you went through a class. You weren't saved because of how much you give and how much you serve and the mission trips you've been on. You were saved by grace and grace alone, through faith and faith alone, through Christ and Christ alone. And we have contributed absolutely nothing to this. In eternity past, it was God who called you and foreknew you. It was God who predestined you and justified you and glorified you. In your lifetime, it is God who effectually called you to himself through his word and gave you the faith to respond to him in repentance. It was God who regenerated your, new, your heart and gave you new affections and desires and filled you with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is God who keeps you and preserves you and will see you through to the last day until we see him face to face. Friends, as Jonah was delivered to the shores of Nineveh through the trials of the sea, the day is coming when you and I will finally be delivered to the shores of heaven, and we will see him face to face. I want to close with this this, this morning. A couple of weeks ago, our family was on vacation at uh, Universal Studios. We took our boys there for a few days. And, um, has anybody ever done like this, this modern Marvel, like the Harry Potter world thing? I mean, it's just nuts. Right. And so we, we had been there three days. We're exhausted. We've been there 12, 13 hours, pretty much every single day. And, um, we get to the end. The last night we were there, we're at the the Hogwarts castle and they do at night a light show. And so our boys are just standing there watching this thing. And then after a few minutes of waiting, man, this, this whole thing just starts to get like glitterly, gl- like, like gold, illuminated. It's just this incredible scene. And, and, and I'm, I'm just going to get an honest confession. I'm trusting you with this this morning. I'm watching this, and I started to tear up a little bit. And, and here is why. Uh, my, my oldest son for, for school, he has been reading uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And as I watched this scene unfold, I could not get out of my mind that part of Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, after all this time carrying the burden, carrying the pain, going through suffering, seeing the worst of what the world had to offer, he finally sees the celestial city. His burden is relieved, and these are the words from Pilgrim's Progress." He says, "Now as just as the gates were opened to let in the men, I looked in after them, and behold, the city shone like the sun. The streets also were paved with gold, and in them walked many men with their crowns on their heads, palms in their hands and golden harps to sing praises withal. There were also all of them that had wings, and they answered one another without intermission, saying, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord." One day we will get to the shores. One day we will get to that celestial city. We will see our King Jesus face to face. So so three challenges for us very quickly as we wrap up this morning in light of the example of Jonah. First challenge for us is to humble yourself before him in times of desperate need. How far are you going to have to fall? How deep are you going to have to go before you turn to him in prayer and deal honestly with your sin? The second for all of us is to testify as a witness to the power of his grace. Testify as a witness to the power of his grace. What is your story of how the Lord has raised you from death to life? Are you sharing that story? Are you telling the great story of what God has done for you in rescuing your soul from death? And for some in this room, that the challenge for you today, very simply, and the invitation is to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Salvation is found in no one else. Salvation belongs to the Lord and to him alone. Are you ready today to deal honestly with the severity of your sin, to renounce the sufficiency of your idols and to turn to him for the salvation of your soul? Will you bow your heads with me as we close? Our time together, uh, it's been long this morning as we've um, addressed several important things. As we close this morning, two two challenges depending on where you are today. The first is if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, he invites you today, no matter how deep you are in your sin, to call on his name and be saved. We have put Next Steps cards on your seats this morning. We would love for you to use those and communicate that with us. In just a moment, you'll have an opportunity to go meet with a member of our prayer team in the back of the room just to receive prayer and encouragement from them as you give your life to Jesus. Submit yourself to Jesus. For all of us as followers of Christ, what what, what sin is in your heart that you need to deal honestly with today? Lest we fall deservedly into the justice of God's consequences. As we come to the table, let's do this through confession. Let's do this through repentance, rejoicing in the hope of the gospel and in the salvation that's offered to us through Jesus Christ. So Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We praise you for what he has accomplished for us through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Receive glory and honor now as we sing, as we pray, as we confess, as we repent, as we turn and orient our hearts to you. Do a work in us today that we'll never forget. Set us apart as instruments for your glory to leave this place proclaiming your good news, wholeheartedly submitted to your will in our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. And everyone said, amen, amen.